Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is the former congressman from Massachusetts, Barney Frank. Back in 1987, he became the first member of the House to voluntarily come out as gay. Some of his colleagues in Congress thought he was making a mistake. Tip O'Neill heard about it. He was then the speaker, and he told one of his uh, friends that I was, uh, he liked me, but I was all through in politics. Uh, Barney Frank's all through in politics. So the guy was Mike Barnacle. I asked him why. He said, well, I think he's going to come out of the room. (laughs) Um, But after I came out, overwhelmingly, he said, you know what, you're better at the job now. There was an anger. There was an emotional tightness that went away, and I was in a job where being able to get along with people was important. It's bullseye. Coming up, we'll hear my conversation with Barney Frank about his new memoir, Frank. He'll tell me why he loved the craft of politics but hated campaigning, how you can give any political memoir a Washington read. A Washington read is you go to the index and look for your name, and then you look it up. And I always do that. I can tell you, by the way, that almost every book on American politics mentions Benjamin Franklin. And the way I know that is, as I go through the index, if I come to Franklin, I'm not there because it's Franklin. Franklin. Later, an interview and a live set from Boston post-punk legend's Mission of Burma. They reunited in 2002 after a 19-year hiatus to release a string of critically acclaimed albums. You were also legendarily loud, right? What? (laughs) You know, I don't think we were as loud as people think we were. I think we were just sort of hard to take. (laughs) Plus, stand-up comedy from Lamont Price. That's all coming up in an episode of Bullseye taped live on stage at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first interview guest this week is former Congressman Barney Frank. Frank served as a House representative for the state of Massachusetts for 32 years. One of his hallmark pieces of legislation is the Dodd-Frank Act, which was designed to regulate the banking system after the 2008 financial crisis. He was the first member of Congress to voluntarily come out as gay and later became the first member of Congress to marry someone of the same sex while in office. He released a new memoir about his life earlier this year. It's called Frank. I spoke to Barney Frank on stage at our live show in Cambridge, Massachusetts. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. I actually, I do not know if congressman is an honorific like president, like it lasts forever. Like, are you, is it no longer a member of Congress? Are you still congressman, Frank? Some people like to keep it. I, I think titles should die with the office. I think... People do too much titling and there's too much deference. Uh, I, am, I, I, I am still officially and will forever be honorable. Yeah. Nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing I can do. But um, no, I, I'm not a great fan of, uh, of titles outlasting the job. So, I mean, I'm sure you did like 10, you've done like 10 million sort of newsy interviews about the book, and I'm not really a real reporter or anything. So, We'll talk relatively little about policy, but... Um, it's like the Republican presidential debate. 
Um, I guess my, I, I guess something that I wondered was like, I, I think there was a point in my life, you know, when you're like six years old, you think, oh, it would be great to be like president. You know what I mean? It, like firemen. And then I think maybe when I was like 14 years old, I thought about what's involved in being president and thought, wow, that sounds horrible. Like, that sounds like a nightmare. And I think you could probably say the same thing of congressperson, like, on the one hand, you get to be honorable for the rest of your life, but it's a son of a gun of a job. And I wonder if it was a job that you always wanted or there was a time when you decided, like, this is worth yeah, it to actually, me. Actually, I, I was uh, interested in politics when I, I remember when I was 14, first uh, um, being very interested. There was the murder of a uh, black kid from Mississippi named Emmett Till. He was exactly my age, 14 in 1954. Brutally murdered because he looked at a white woman the wrong way visiting in Mississippi. And I remember being outraged that the sheriff was in on it, the federal government wasn't going to do anything. So, so early on, I thought, yeah, I would like to be in politics. Um, but there was one requirement that I was sure at that time was a requirement that I knew I could not meet, and that was to be not gay. Um, it did not seem to me at 14. I, I realized I was gay when I was 13. And it, it just seemed to me when I was 14, this is 1954, the notion that we would one day be repudiating homophobia, that gay people, lesbians, would we be treated like anybody else. Uh, the notion that we could fight this, uh, you might as well have told me that my mission in life was to repeal the law of gravity. It was just this big fat fact that sat on top of me. So I began to think about maybe doing stuff politically, but not being an elected official. That didn't come until uh, much later. When you were a kid, like a teenager, did you know other people who were gay? No. Um, and I don't now know. Remember, I, this is 19, I was born in 1940. Um, the only gay people, uh, you know, we, the word gay, somebody was saying the other day, oh, I remember I was with somebody and someone said LGBT. He said, oh, I remember when it was just L and G. I said, yeah, when I was growing up, it was just F. Um, but I never talked to anybody about being gay. I didn't tell anybody, and nobody ever told me. Who was the first person you told in your life? Oh, interesting. Um, it, was, uh, it wasn't until the 20s. Um, I, I actually, the first person I guess I told I was gay was someone I was having sex with, but... Uh, <laughs> Hopefully but beforehand. A, well, there's a qualification... <laughs> I, I told him I was gay, but I didn't tell him I was me. So uh, he didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was. Uh, names were not a major part of the uh, transaction. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think it was my siblings. It was, I was in my late uh, 30s. I had been elected to the state legislature. And I do I want to say this, though, because I am, you know, I acknowledge having been a coward and not thinking I could make this fight. But I... I I got elected to the state legislature when I was 32. There's a part of downtown Boston, the Back Bay, Beacon Hill, which at that point was very different than the rest of Boston. The rest of Boston, you know, if you want to see the rest of Boston, you go see Black Mass. I mean, that's what the rest of the city was like. It was a very provincial place. So I, I got elected. And I, I got elected in part because um, George McGovern ran, and he got clobbered everywhere. But we had 18-year-old votes for the first time and a lot of students in that area. Um, but I made this decision. I had to deal with this. All right, I'm going to conceal the fact that I'm gay because I, I, I like the idea of being in politics. And uh, I just, uh, if I was honest about it, I'd never win. 
but I also committed myself to being supportive of, of gay rights. I, I have only contempt for those gay and lesbian people who themselves practice being gay and then vote for legislation to make other people miserable. Although, and again, I say gay and lesbian because you don't want to be sexist, but when I talk about that, I should just say gay because very few lesbians pull that uh, This business of living a gay life and then being an anti-gay politician, that's almost exclusively a uh, Republican male operation. So I am very proud that if, in 1972, the first year I got elected to the legislature, I did file a gay rights bill. I also filed a bill uh, to legalize marijuana. So to some extent, uh, I welcome the rest of the country to catching up with me. <laughs> Do you, I mean, when you say that you have nothing but contempt for people in that position, people who are themselves gay but uh, supported anti-gay policies and legislations, do you mean that literally? I mean, Absolutely. And, and I, I, there was a right to privacy, but it's not a right to hypocrisy. Look, there's a great 17th century philosopher, John Locke, who set out some of the basic tenets that got into the American Constitution. And he said, one of the important principles is to have a decent government, the people who make the laws have to be affected by the laws. If you can make laws for other people and not have to follow them yourself, they're not going to be fair. Uh, this notion that you would yourself perpetuate this abuse of other people for doing what you do uh, is outrageous. And people said, well, uh, you know, if they were going to stay in office, they had no choice. That's right. You, look, you have a right to live your life. You have a right to get a job. And if you have to conceal your uh, sexual orientation because of where you live, the job, that's one thing. But you don't have to be in the legislative body. You don't have to be in elected office. Uh, example, people understand... Kim Davis, the, the, the woman in Kentucky who uh, didn't want to let people get married. She said this is her religious freedom. No, it wasn't her religious freedom. Nobody made her run for the office. She ran for the job, and having run for the job and won it, she didn't want to use that to deny other people their rights. So you don't have to get into public office. You don't have to get authority of other people. But if you voluntarily take authority over other people, and then you are that hypocritical and make them miserable, no, I, I, I meant that literally. When in your life were... Let me, by the way, I'll give you a literary reference. I was in the airport today, and I, I saw George H.W. Bush's, the biography of him, and I gave it what we call a Washington read. Um, a Washington read is you go to the index and look for your name, and then you look it up. And I always do that. I can tell you, by the way, that almost every book on American politics mentions Benjamin Franklin. And the way I know that is, as I go through the index, if I come to Franklin, I'm not there because Franklin, Franklin. So I went to, I'm pretty, feeling pretty cocky. I went to Old Man Butcher's uh, autobiography, the memoir of uh, uh, the biography of him. And he does, uh, I'm in there. And he cited a reference to a point in 1991 when the Republicans threatened, uh, he was president, his Republican National Committee chairman uh, put out a memo saying that Tom Foley, who was a Democratic speaker, uh, should come out of his liberal closet. And it was printed on lavender paper. And it talked about how he and I voted alike. I had been out by then. And there was an effort to kind of imply that Foley was gay and also that being gay was terrible. So my response was that I obviously didn't agree that being gay was a terrible thing. But if that was the norm, then I would feel it was my duty to give a list of all the gay Republicans to the appropriate people. And they backed off uh, at that time. And Bush notes that in his, uh, he's quoted as talking about that in his memo. He wasn't happy. <laughs>
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to my interview with former Congressman Barney Frank. His memoir, Frank, is out now. How old were you when you were able to have a relationship? And I don't mean a public relationship, but just just to, like, date somebody. Uh, It started in my 30s, not really until I get to my 40s, because here was the problem. I'd made this choice, my choice, nobody to blame but myself, um, to have a public career at the price of my private life. And that made it very hard to have a relationship because it was a secret relationship. I mean, I guess I think I'm a good person to be with, but I don't think I am so uh, irresistibly desirable that people are going to put up with all kinds of nonsense like hiding just to have the privilege of my company. And um, (laughs) it becomes, it's very hard to have a public career and be private. Where do you go? I mean, people knew who I was. And so I, I uh, it really retarded that. And in fact, I got to Washington. It was very hard in Boston, small town. Everybody's going to watch me. Um, I got to Washington. I thought, well, Washington may be big enough so I can do this. And that didn't work either. Some people would be too out for me. I would be too out for them. Uh, and that's why I decided to come out publicly, frankly, was it? I just was not able to have a satisfying personal life. And you may hear people say, oh, they say this about people who are closeted. She didn't have to have a, a uh, personal life. Her career made up for it. People say they, their career made up for it. That's nonsense. No career gives you the kind of personal and physical and emotional outlet you need. And in my experience, people who are deeply closeted and they're in a job where there's a lot of personal interaction, that hurts their ability to do the job. When I was thinking about coming out, a lot of my colleagues who heard about it, because I wasn't being all that uh, quiet about it. In fact, Tip O'Neill uh, heard about it. He was then the speaker, and he told... Uh, uh, one of his uh, friends that I was, uh, he was afraid that he liked me, but I was all through in politics. Uh, Banny Frank's all through in politics. So the guy was Mike Barnacle. I asked him, why? He said, well, I think he's going to come out of the room. <laughs> um, but after, and so people said, don't do it, it's going to damage you, we don't want to lose you. But after I came out, overwhelmingly, he said, you know what, you're better at the job now. There was an anger, there was a, 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 an emotional tightness that went away. And I was in a job where being able to get along with people was important. One of the things that you write about in the book is that you have never really enjoyed running for office. You, you seem to, like, it's really evident that you really enjoy um, politics and the political process and policy and, you know, helping make the world a better place and so on and so forth. But that running, which maybe for some people is an enjoyable way to connect with of a lot of people, to some extent, was hard for you. It sucks. <laughs> um, I liked dealing with people when I was in office, because then you could be talking to them. But you got to think about campaigning. First of all, you're in a campaign. It's a spe- by campaign, it generally means you're, you're in an election where you don't know what the outcome is. Because if you know, you go through the motion. So you're in there. And, and then what do you do? It's very, even now it's gotten worse with money. You, you have to raise more. But it's very repetitive. Um, you do 12 events a day. You repeat yourself. I mean, you got to. In fact, here's the deal: if you are asked, uh, you know, you talk about issues. If you vary what you say, then you're going to be attacked for being inconsistent. So you have to repeat yourself all the time. Uh, you have to go show that you're available. Martha Copley got attacked because she said she didn't want to stand out in front of Fenway Park, you know, and shake hands. Well, you got to do that. But the fact is that a lot of the people you want to shake hands with think you're a pain in the ass. Get away from me. I want to go to a game. And so you, you, I mean, very little of what you do in a campaign 
would you do if you didn't absolutely have to? There are no, no things that you like. Afterwards, then it's interesting. You get to talk to people about their lives, their jobs, how you can be helpful. And I enjoyed working with other members to try and work things out. But, but campaigning, no, never. And I, by the way, I don't think anybody really likes it. I know people go, oh, I love to campaign. I would just warn you, when you hear someone who talks about how much he loves to campaign, it's either a liar or a psychopath. <laughs> when you were still in the closet, um, what about it was scariest to you? Um, the fear that I was never going to have the kind of satisfying emotional life that uh, was there. And I, uh, later on, and, and I, look, I, the uh, inscription in my book is to Jim, who's made better late than never, my f- favorite cliche. Um, <laughs> I used to hate love songs. I mean, it was a, there was a whole part of human experience that was I didn't know anything about. And, and I would uh, be very jealous and, and get depressed about the... Uh, this and so yeah, I was afraid that I would go through life deprived of this. And then, look, you have physical needs, and so I then f- f- met my physical needs irresponsibly in some ways, anonymously. Um, there was an element of uh, I was never f- never fear of, of violence, although that uh, was uh, look one of the first things I learned when I first ran for the legislature, and I worked with the gay men in the city, and they had complaints about the police, and I thought it was going to be that they were being uh, police brutality. It was no, that when they were the victims of crimes, they found it hard to approach the police because you would be robbed by some guy you picked up on the street, and you could not, you, you, you didn't want to reveal that. And I, actually, the police were very helpful in trying to find ways that they could deal with that. But it was the fear of exposure. I mean, that would be a, a, the fear of exposure was was maybe the the most obvious, but the, this this fear of uh, living my life, uh, having missed out on what everybody told me was a wonderful part of the human experience, but I was never able to experience myself. That was pretty. That was pretty scary. Was there ever a time when you like really seriously considered abandoning public life? Oh, very much so. Yeah, I, I was going to abandon public life until the Pope made me not. Um, <laughs> Classic <laughs> story. The, How many people have sat on the stage and told the story of the time the Pope? At the, at the, uh, I got elected to the legislature in this very unusual district, in Back Bay, Beacon Hill. And I was there for about eight years, but I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be able to go on for it. I'm, too, I'm not a great candidate. Um, by the way, when I first ran, it wasn't just being gay that was an issue. It was the fact that I'm Jewish, although I, I can report that anti-Semitism has pretty much disappeared as a political problem uh, for candidates. But what happens here is this... Um, I decide, okay, I've enjoyed being in the legislature. I went to law school, so I would have something to do. I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve out one more term. Well, it's to make a living. Right, right, right. a terrible problem if you're an elected official and you have no alternative way of making a living. Then you really do become a prisoner of other people's prejudices because it's one thing to lose the prestige of the job. It's another not to be able to support yourself. And so um, I I started coming out to my siblings and my closest friends, and I was uh, going to serve one more term in the legislature, retire from elected politics, but I would have, I had passed the bar. I was going to be a lawyer. At that point, this would have been 1982, I would have been uh, as high-ranking an elected official as anybody who was out who was gay uh, because the Massachusetts legislature is a fairly significant job. So I was going to be a gay rights activist and a lawyer, and I was going to be out. And that 
because I knew if I came out, uh, you know, I couldn't get elected or anything. Uh, I had thought about maybe running for Congress. I thought that was one job I might be able to win. But I lived in uh, the district, including Cambridge, and Tip O'Neill was the congressman. You know, he was a great congressman. That was nothing I was going to think about doing. And then in 1980, I got a call from the wife of a good friend of mine, a guy I'd been in the legislature with, and uh, she told me the congressman from the district next to mine, which was also a pretty liberal district, Newton and Brookline, uh, as its core. He was uh, a Jesuit priest. His name was Robert Drynan. He'd been the dean of the Boston College Law School, and in 1970 got elected as an anti-war candidate, beating a pro-war Democrat. And he was very liberal. And uh, when Pope John Paul II became the pope, he was persuaded by conservative Catholics that it was bad for them to have a liberal priest in Congress. So he ordered Drynan not to run again. And uh, when he ordered Drynan not to run again, uh, that created the vacancy for me to run for Congress. So it was the decision of Pope John Paul II that uh, <laughs> uh, created the vacancy. And Drynan said that they never let him see the Pope after that. But he, he did want to say, just ask him one question, that business where you made me quit Congress, did that work out the way you uh, <laughs> had thought it would? But it wasn't. So I was going to quit. And then I got elected to Congress. And at that point, I was starting to come out. I remember calling my brother-in-law called my sister out and said, you just heard a closet door slam because I'm running for Congress. So I, I started coming out in 79 and 80, and then I postponed it for a few years uh, until I was fairly secure as a member of Congress. I'll finish my conversation with Barney Frank after a break. He'll tell me what he misses most about being in Congress. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Netflix, presenting Making a Murderer, which follows the harrowing story of Stephen Avery, an outsider from the wrong side of the tracks who was exonerated after serving 18 years for a brutal assault. He filed a $36 million lawsuit that threatened to expose corruption in local law enforcement. But in the midst of his very public civil case, he suddenly finds himself the prime suspect in a grisly new crime. All episodes of Making a Murderer are now streaming only on Netflix. Hey, gang, thanks for listening to Bullseye in 2015. If you're in the middle of the holidays and you're looking for something to distract you from the nightmare that is your family, why not check out some other NPR podcasts? One of my favorites is Pop Culture Happy Hour. You can also check out Fresh Air, which is like our show but better. It'll give you some dinner table conversation for when things turn hairy. Go to npr.org slash podcast or check them out on the NPR One app. And have a happy holiday. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my interview with former Congressman Barney Frank, which we just recorded as part of our live show at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. One of the things that really shines through in your book is your belief in a kind of pragmatism in government and in your life that, you know, there's some of your proudest achievements are compromises. Um, All, All my achievements are compromises because I was never the absolute monarch. So I was never in a position on any important issue, which involves a whole lot of interesting people, to do exactly what I wanted. Did you, looking back, do you ever wish? And one of the things that you write about in the book is the extent to which decisions like your decision to run for Congress are not like complicated strategic decisions like historians think of them, but really the emotional decisions of people. And taking advantage of opportunities, yeah. And... I wondered if you ever wished to yourself, I wish I had made 
an emotional decision just in 1982, just come out. And I could have had five more years of my life. No, because I would have had five more years of being out, but I would not have had the congressional career. And I am proud of the fact that uh, I was the first person to come out voluntarily in 1987. Um, And I, I, I believe I was instrumental. When I got elected to Congress, the immigration law of America said that if you were gay or lesbian, you could not come to America, even as a tourist. And it wasn't always enforced, but it was in there. And I, I, I believe that if I hadn't been there, that would not have gotten out as early as it did. And there were some other things that I was able to accomplish. Uh, um, one very specific thing I got Bill Clinton to do, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and particularly transgender people were being persecuted in other countries. Uh, as of 1995, because of Clinton's response to my request, became eligible for asylum in America. So there are transgender people living in America today safe who might have been killed if they weren't able to come out. I wouldn't have been able to do any of that if I'd, if I'd uh, come out earlier. So, yeah, you know, it, it, was a, it was a deferral rather than a denial. If I had never come out, yeah, well, that would have been a, a very bad idea. And finally, by, by 87, uh, I was not ready to accept denial forever. I wasn't sure that I would get reelected. I, was, I, I hoped I would. Uh, but by 87, I was ready to say, okay, full speed ahead and damn the consequences. But it then turned out to work out pretty well. There have obviously been some pretty huge improvements in the law surrounding LGBT people in the United States in the last 10 years or so. You know, sometimes I feel like when it became legal for people of the same sex to marry, um, a lot of uh, well-meaning people who supported that right sort of patted themselves on the back and said, great, we fixed the gay situation. Um, and, you know, in, in, as uh, you would know, uh, you know, in, in many states, somewhere between many and most states in the United States, majority, you can still be fired for being gay. Um, you know, there are these huge challenges ahead. Um, and I wonder how sanguine you feel about. Oh, I'm very optimistic. I think the fights, I think we've won the fight in our team politically and we're in a mop up operation. That doesn't mean you let up. I, you know, I, I, it's the thing about military history, which is people are critical of great military leaders because they win a victory and then they relax after winning the victory instead of pressing on. And we've won some great victories, but this is the time when you press on. And now, it's this way, but it's true in a number of areas in America. If you live, let's put it this way, a majority of gay, lesbian, bisexual people, transgender people are still having more of a fight. A majority of us live in states in America where we have every right everybody else does, because a lot of states protect us. But there are still people who live in southern states and some other states where that's not the case. And yeah, there is still that, that fight to be, uh, to be made. Now, we just won another a secondary fight I was a little nervous about, and that was this effort to uh, uh, let people who wanted to use their religion against us to do that. And one of the most encouraging things that happened was in Indiana, where they were going to pass a law that allowed bigots to uh, refuse to honor or treat people in a same-sex marriage fairly, and that got defeated. And what was nice about it was it was defeated not just by people who believed in fairness, but the business community came into it. And the business community said, hey, look, we want to make money. We don't want to pick and choose as to who we make money from. 
And it's an interesting principle there. The, the bigots thought they were giving the business community, they were doing them a favor by saying, we're going to give you the right to deny service to those gay people. And the business community said, we didn't ask you for that. You, I don't want to have that right because I'm either going to deny service to some people and make them mad or not deny service to people and make other people mad. And there was a very important principle there, which I, I will share with you. Be very cautious about doing favors for people that they haven't asked you to do. Um, these people thought they were given the, a great favor to the business community by giving them a chance to pick. And they said, no, we don't want to pick. We want to serve everybody. I learned that, by the way, in my first year in Congress because a woman called me and said her daughter was to get married and her fiancé was being shipped overseas. And could I hold it back so we can get married? So I called the Army and they said, oh, no, you can't intervene on behalf of somebody else. You have to check with him. So I was going to call the guy, but before I could call him to tell him, don't worry, I'm going to make sure you can stay here, he called my office and left a message with uh, one of my aides, tell him to mind his own bleeping business, because he didn't want to get married. And he didn't, he didn't need me to come and try and undo this. But that's what the biggest did. So the answer is, there's still fighting to be done. And yes, there, there are gay and lesbian and bisexual people in some areas, and transgender people everywhere who haven't got their full rights. But I, I think the, the force is with us on this. In reading your book, I could tell how deeply you cared about, um, you know, the way laws affect the finance industry, uh, housing. Um, There are some issues that you really made your signature issues in a long career in Congress. And I wonder if it's weird for you that you are retired and you are gay former congressman Barney Frank. And no. I say that acknowledging that I just have talked to you about being gay for half an hour. Yeah, no, oh no, no. I, look, I, that is one of the things that I, I'm proud to have been able to do. But uh, we do have the financial reform bill. And another bill, actually one of the areas I worked on the longest, and it's obviously very relevant here, building more rental housing. And that continues to be an issue. And something I've worked on just got activated that is going to help build uh, affordable rental housing. Um, no, I never had this, oh, I'm not a gay congressman. I'm a congressman who just happens to be gay. Well, I, I, mean, I, I guess I just did happen to be gay. I didn't have much to do with it. But um, uh, no, I, I was You didn't a, a pick gay, it because it seemed fun. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I was a gay congressman. And that was given the, you know, it's interesting too and I, for me. If I was 20 years older, I would not have had much of a career in fighting for gay rights because it wouldn't have been possible. And I'm hoping if I was 20 years younger, it wouldn't have been necessary. I really haven't have been there at the cusp. But no, I, don't, I don't feel underappreciated. Uh, look, I, I think back to when I was a kid and uh, how I was kind of like, you know, looking at politics and enjoying it and uh, thinking, geez, I'll never be able to be there. Uh, things worked out a hell of a lot better for me than I ever thought they would. So I have no, I have no, no sense that I'm being unfairly... Uh, Regarded. What was the most fun part about being a congressman? Working the legislative process. Look, I'm, most of us like things we're good at and don't like things we're not good at. And that's why I encourage people to try to, if you're picking a job, try and find one that you enjoy and that plays to your strength. I know there are people, oh, I should do this because it's, it's something I should do even though I hate it. You can't live holding a gun to your own head even though, what's his name, does that in Blazing Saddles. But that's, it, doesn't really, it, it, it does not really work well in, in, in real life. So uh, uh, what I most liked was I was very good at 
working with other politicians, figuring out how to get them to do things, trying to get the, it's an interesting thing when you're a member of Congress, 435 legally equal people. Nobody can give anybody else an order, and you can't, you can't buy their votes, and we don't, people don't do that. So it's figuring out how, you, how do you frame the things you care about in ways that will most appeal to other people. You find things that you like, you, you find what's most important to you and what's most important to them, and you hope they don't intersect because that way you can give in on theirs and they give in on yours. So actually getting legislation done, that, that process of you know, the, the compromising, the, uh, the, the, the... It's funny, like I, I saw you backstage doing a crossword and it occurred to me it's like the fitting of those pieces together for you. Yeah, Seems like it's a game that's fun to play. To, it to is. It's a kind of a, it's, it, look, I have no spatial skills. I, I cannot look at uh, two dimensions and envision three dimensions. So I could do a Rubik's Cube forever, and it would never <laughs> work. But the human Rubik's Cube, yeah, I did. How do you fit it together? And it's like, first of all, you, you know everybody. You, you, one of my jobs, I think, I, I knew as much about every other member of Congress as anybody, because you got to know people, know what motivates them, and you know what's important to them, and you know, frankly, which people you might be able to flatter or intimidate or what you could do for some other people. I spent all my time, particularly once I became chairman, uh, and I had a role model on this, Lyndon Johnson, when he was in the majority leader of the Senate. Um, and I enjoyed that, uh, especially because it was for high stakes. I mean, I enjoyed doing this because uh, the end result would be more affordable housing or better regulation of the financial industry or getting rid of don't ask, don't tell. Those things were, were – the process was fun and the result was valuable. Couldn't get any better than that. Well, uh, I was about to say Congressman Frank, but I'll say Honorable Mr. Frank. I'm very grateful that you took the time to come be on the show. Thank you very much. It's so well, nice to meet you. My goodness, thank you. Barney Frank, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Barney Frank. He served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1981 to 2013. His memoir, Frank, is available now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. While we were on our recent world tour of several American cities... We wanted to include some stand-up in every show. This week's guest was the obvious choice for the Cambridge show. He's one of Boston's top comics. He's a winner of the New York Underground Comedy Festival, and he's been named as one of Comedy Central's comics to watch. With a set taped live at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts, this is Lamont Price. Thank you, everybody. How's everybody doing tonight? I like to have fun. I get bored really easily. Like, when I get really bored, I don't know if you feel like this, but I like to um, hurt people. You ever? <laughs> it just makes me feel powerful. You know, you know what I'm saying? You ever feel like that? You just want to feel like... Like, here's what I do. Sometimes I walk down the street, right, and I'll see somebody, you know, and I'll just want to hit them in the head with a coconut. Because <laughs> I think that sound is hilarious. That sound is just... That's a winner every time. I don't laugh because I'm a horrible person. I laugh because that's the right thing to do. Like, this, it just feels correct to do that. You know? Like, sometimes I'll be outside just hanging out, and, like, if I hear off in the distance, like a faint... <laughs> I just get excited. I just start going... <laughs> yeah, somebody just got messed up. It, like, makes me feel good. I want to try it. I think everybody should just live out their fantasies once. I never get in trouble either, because I'm too smooth. Like, I make sure that if I ever got busted doing it, I make sure that when they saw me, right, 
And I was holding a handful of coconuts. <laughs> so I can be like, yo, man, it wasn't me. I got all my coconuts. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a genius, is what I'm trying to tell you. So I was, uh, I was at home today watching Netflix and uh, chilling <laughs> all by myself, right? You know, <laughs> I was watching one of my favorite movies. Anybody ever see uh, the movie White Men Can't Jump? Anybody remember that movie? Where Woody Harrelson went to the hood and he was better at basketball than anybody in the hood, right? And nobody asked for his birth certificate. Like, nobody questioned it. They just accepted it. Uh, I love that movie. I watch it every time it's on, and I put it on for myself. But I think my favorite part of that movie is the theme song, which, uh, ironically enough, is called White Men Can't Jump. And, you know, it, it made me feel good. As a kid from the inner city, I always needed something to uplift me, and that song always made me feel good. Because that song was just like, you know, it just went, Bet your bottom dollar that you can make me holler. Don't you know that white men can't jump, right? And as a kid in the hood, all I heard, that song represented to me about four minutes of white dude shortcomings. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, me and my friends would get excited, like, that's right, they can't jump. <laughs> we finally got a leg up on these dudes. Like, it made me feel good. We'd be just, white men can't jump, like, every day. But what I didn't realize until I got older was that there's another message being relayed in that song. There's another thing going on in the background that you don't pick up, and I didn't hear until like two years ago. Because the guy in the front's like, white men can't jump, right? But there's a dude in the background of that song whose only job in that song is to go, white man, white man. I didn't hear that until 2013. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm so excited about the white man can't jump. I'm completely dismissing this dude in the background just reinforcing white supremacy. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just like, white man, don't you know we own all the banks? <laughs> and I was like, Phew. it made me sad, is what I'm trying to tell you. But that's not even the joke, all right? The joke is, this afternoon... While I was watching White Men Can't Jump, and I'm practicing the song for you guys, because I want the pitch to be perfect, you know? So I'm just walking around the house, it's like, white man, and my window's wide open. And uh, as I'm in the middle of the song, I didn't realize that there were three white dudes just walking up the street. And all they see in my window was a 300-pound black dude with no shirt on going, white man. We play PlayStation for hours, those guys. Man. <laughs> we are best friends now. <laughs> this is fun, man. I, I got to date somebody soon. <laughs> I don't know if I can just say it and it comes true, but <laughs> is that like a thing you can do? Like, I just want to date somebody soon, and then it just happens. I don't do well. I don't do well. I have this look. It's creepy. And I get it, you know. I look like a black version of that monster from Where the Wild Things Are. Like, I understand what's going on. <laughs> and no, hey, listen, I understand my, my weaknesses. You know, and sometimes ladies in this town see me. You know how Boston is. You know Boston. Come on, man. I, I came up doing comedy in a predominantly white section of Boston known as, you know, Boston. So, like, I know, <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. 
And so sometimes ladies see me, you know, you think about the news too much and you go, um, I don't know, right? And I tell them, like, you don't, don't get nervous for me. Like, oh, he might, I don't know, he might rob me. Whatever you think. So you want to date a guy that makes you feel safe. You know what I'm saying? Like a dude that wears, like, a sweater vest. <laughs> With, like, a collar coming out of the top. You know, some dude named Todd. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you meet that guy. And Todd will never rob you. I, I guarantee it. It's the truth. But, but. He'll probably hang you upside down by your toes in his basement. Like, that's probably, that's a Todd thing. Like, if you look through the annals, the annals of dudes hanging chicks upside down by their toes in the basement, you might find one dude that resembles me, but the rest of them dudes look like Todd. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'll be the first to get in trouble. That's why my move is when I'm hanging out at a bar and I'm talking to a young lady and it's not working out, my cutoff time is 1130. If it's not working out by 1130, I'm out. I don't waste any time. And I don't just leave. I'm too smart for that. I make sure that before I leave any situation, whatever young lady I'm talking to, before I go, I make sure I I introduce her to one more person. Because you know, if she goes missing, what's the first thing they ask? Who was the last person she was seen with? Not me, baby. And I leave a bar, I'll be like, have you, have you met Todd? And I bounce. Before I go tonight, I want to ask one question of the crowd. Who in here, growing up, had Nintendos? I hate you all. When I was nine years old, the only thing I wanted on the planet was a Nintendo, okay? And I didn't have one. But what made it worse was that all my friends at school had Nintendos. And you know, nine-year-old kids don't really care about your plight. They just don't care. Like, I go to school every day, and my friends would be like, hey, yo, L, you get that Nintendo yet? And I'd have to be honest, like, nah, not yet, guys. You know, can't afford it. Tight times. And my friends were compassionate. No, they just go, <laughs> you suck. We all got Nintendos over here. You sitting over there by yourself. Nintendo-less. And I'll just cry, right? It, it was the worst. Then I remember one day my mom she comes home from shopping, right? My mom's like, Lamont, come out here and help me with these bags. And when you're nine, the last thing you want to do is manual labor. So like I'm just like, ah. Oh. Right, let me go help this woman. <laughs> she pays the bills, I'm told. So I go help reluctantly, right? I'm not into it at all. I'm just grabbing bags. I'm just not, whatever, right? But then I notice in the back seat, I could see the last bag, and I could see through the plastic, and inside that bag was a box. And on that box said Nintendo. And I was like, yes. Anybody remember that kid excitement you would get when you knew something awesome was happening, that adrenaline rush? So I'm grabbing extra bags now. You know, I'm like, give me that bag. I'll take that bag for you, Mom. Don't worry about it. And she doesn't know that I saw the bag. So she's just like, uh, you know, Lamont, I got you something special. And I was just like, word. Because I didn't want to blow my cover, right? So I get in the house. I start unloading everything by myself, man. I'm so excited. And I finally get to that last bag. And I start to pull that box out, right? And all I'm thinking about is all the trash I'm going to talk when I get to school on Monday. 
Got it all mapped out. But I get that box halfway out, right? And um, I don't know who in here remembers this song, but it goes, uh, Nintendo, it's a breakfast now. <laughs> Nintendo, it's a cereal, wow. <laughs> yeah, my mother got me a box of Nintendo cereal. <laughs> and I had to eat the cereal. I was eating it all angry. Just taking angry spoonfuls, right? My mom would come in, oh, you eat the cereal? And I'd be like, yeah. And the worst was that every cereal piece was shaped like a Nintendo character. <laughs> so my mom would try to bomb with me, like, oh, my God, it's cute. You're eating the cereal. So who's that supposed to be? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't have a Nintendo. I don't know who anybody in this bowl is. I mean, a bowl full of strangers. <laughs> Guys, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the show. Lamont Price. Find out where he's performing near you at lamontpricelive.com. After a break, legendary post-punk band Mission of Burma took 19 years off. Then they reunited to release a bunch of new albums. What changed in the time in between? Not much, apparently. We never didn't fit into the scene in 82, really. There were no bands really playing music like us. And we're the same weirdos now. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ThriveMarket.com, an online shopping club where healthy, organic foods and non-toxic products are up to 50% off retail prices and shipped to your door. You can easily filter by your preferences, including vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. And when you become a member, ThriveMarket.com will donate a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or military veteran. Go to thrivemarket.com slash NPR to start your free two-month trial and get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening to Bullseye this year. NPR podcasts have you covered this holiday no matter what your mood is. One of my favorites is the Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's a panel discussion about things that are going on in popular culture. It is fun and funny and fascinating. You can find it and all of NPR's other podcasts at npr.org slash podcasts or in the NPR One app. Happy holidays. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My final guests this week are a Boston band who originally formed more than 35 years ago. After a 19-year hiatus, they reformed in 2002, adding shellac bassist Bob West into the lineup and releasing four more albums. They joined me on stage at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I chatted with them before they performed. So to give newcomers a taste of what they sound like, here's a little bit of the song Micah from my guest's Mission of Burma's 1982 debut album, Versus.
That's Micah from My Guest Mission of Burma. Band members Roger Miller, Clint Conley, Peter Prescott, and Bob Weston join me on stage for our live show at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I was, re- I was reading some interviews that you guys had done um, in the past. I don't remember which one of you said this, but it jumped out at me. It was, uh, nobody wants to see a 65-year-old punk rocker, I believe was the direct quote. So, like, what's the difference between a 55-year-old punk rocker and a 65-year-old punk rocker, I guess is the question. Ten years. <laughs> you know, when we, when we play a live show and it really works, which, strangely enough, most of the times it does, there's a feeling that I don't get from any other thing, and I play in lots of other groups. It's a very specific thing indigenous to Mission of Burma, and there's this kind of crazed release that uh, you just kind of get carried away. And, you, and you know, like two minutes before you could go, you're going on, I could say, like, I'm so tired of touring, I'm sick of all this b-. And then the minute, you know, after the first chord, it's like, oh, this is why I'm doing this. Is that harder to get up to that, like, takeoff speed uh, at this point in your life than it was when you were 25? Because when you're 25, like, that almost comes naturally. Well, I, I think that... Um, Certainly did for me, I was a... I was really all- reckless <laughs> hosting my own public radio show and <laughs> taking the bus places. Uh, is it hard? I, um, I, there was certainly a time in my life, speaking for myself, early in the band, the early 80s, where this was my whole life. And it was just an all-encompassing. It was uh, very filled with righteous conviction we were going to change the world. You know, it was all that idealistic stuff. Uh, And at the same time, clearing rooms. Yeah, clearing rooms and getting evidence from the world that this was not going to happen for us, the revolution. How did those things go go together? But, uh, you know, now I... Middle age. Middle? Barely. Hanging on to middle age. And uh, uh, with a regular job. And I mean, often right up until 10 minutes before we play, I just feel so distant from the idea of performing. The idea of singing in front of people just seems ludicrous. It seems preposterous. But then you plug it in, you turn it up, and you just go somewhere that uh, feels very familiar. You know, it's, uh, it touches something very deep when you're performing. Did you feel like you had a mission when you were young? Like, was there like a there was righteous conviction. I mean, we were yes, full of righteous conviction. I mean, we, we knew, we believed in what we were doing. It didn't matter that hardly anybody else did. Over and over, we'd get punched in the face by, by fate and audiences. And we were just still, <laughs> you know, how could this be? But we still believed it. And in some weird way, fate has acknowledged that we possibly were correct. What did you believe? Like, what did you think you were doing that was important? Well, dead silence there. Something we didn't know we didn't know what it was, but something really personal that that we sort of like car, carved out. And you know, it had a lot to do with other bands that doing punk or post punk or noisy stuff. But we felt like ours was ours and nobody else's. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess that a personal uh, thing. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were sort of, you know, obviously things like, you know, song structure that we kind of fool around with and conventional, uh, uh, you know, ideas of what a rock song is. Uh, that was, you know, on the surface. But also, uh, I mean, just everything our, down to our cellular level was just sort of 
oppositional and antagonistic. It was always just this struggle against, 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 you know? That was very central to who we were and the sounds we made. Was that exhausting, like, in and of itself? Yeah! Hell yeah! <laughs> but in the first round, we were, you know, in our 20s and 30s, so it wasn't as exhausting. You could recuperate a little quicker. That, that's the bigger thing now, is, like, I don't enjoy being in the van for 10 hours as much as I used to when I was 25. That's the biggest drawback. Yeah, it was, we were very much anti-establishment against the established order, doing things differently, kind of breaking things apart so you could put them back together differently. And there were many bands that were sharing this kind of thing with us in the punk and post-punk era. You were also legendarily loud, right? What? <laughs> <laughs> How many times I've told that joke? <laughs> You know, I don't think we were as loud as people think we were. I think that's the, the kind of loudness we were making. Lots of cymbal clash and confusion yeah, was, was, and chaos. The texture as much as the volume. idea that we were loud. I think we were just sort of hard to take. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was, I, was talking to, uh, I was talking to Lamont Price, the, who was a stand-up on this show backstage. And, we, you know, we were talking about rap music and stuff, and then... We started talking about Mission of Burma, and I, I mentioned that I noticed a, a bumper sticker for the band Sun on one of these amps, um, which is spelled for the radio listeners, S-U-N, open parentheses, oh, open yeah, parentheses, yeah. open parentheses, open parentheses, letter O, yep. closed, like a bunch of closed parentheses. One of the, they're a, a metal band, uh, which, I'm, and I'm not going to name this subgenre because that is a fool's errand. Uh, when it comes to being corrected on via email and Twitter to try and name the subgenre of metal of a metal band, but um, one of the distinctive things about that band is they create a sound that is so loud that it not only has what you might traditionally think of as a musical effect, but also is designed to create a physical effect mm-hmm. in the audience, which may or may not be. Uh, as they say in FCC guidelines, uh, excretory. <laughs> um, and like, I, I wonder if being loud and making noise, you know, that kind of difficult to take that you just described, was a, something that you wanted and why you wanted that. Well, when I, I remember one of the first bands I ever saw when I was in ninth grade, I was at a hop and the band was doing, you know, Animals was late British invasion, just pre psychedelia, and I stood as close as I could in front of the guitar of Sam. You know, and it's just that's what I wanted to be overwhelmed. I think that's what people enjoy about really loud music is that there's an overwhelmness and they're just carried away, removed from normal reality. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt we get pleasure from that, but there's there's so many bands that are much freer with their noise than we are. I mean, I think uh, part of us is this intense discipline in having these parts that are really compressed or quiet and then getting loud. And, and I, I, think, I think it's conflict and tension as much as it is uh, just pure Sonic how course. much noise yeah. Yeah, we can make. Mission of Burma dissolved in the early 80s and didn't exist as a band for 19 years before you uh, uh, reformed 10 or 12 years ago. Um, in the meantime, did you think that being in Mission of Burma could, would be a thing again or could be a thing again? Was it something that occurred to you? 
No. Um, really didn't. People uh, did 100%, ask us. A hundred percent not. Yeah. People asked us sometimes, and I made the joke that we might go on stage and play cards and then go <laughs> off. And that, that would be it. I think the mothers did that one time. <laughs> oh, they <laughs> did. Uh, but no, we never thought we'd get back together to play. Bob was not in the first go-around. He, he replaced someone who was kind of replaceable, and he did it perfectly. <laughs> I mean, kind of irreplaceable, I'm sorry. Ask Bob a question. That <laughs> sounded pretty good for a second there. I like that not only did Bob refuse to answer any questions, he like he held the microphone as far away from his body as he could while giving a non-verbal like mm-mm. like a How did it feel when you got on stage together for the first time after you had not been on stage together for basically 20 years? Well, I I felt like the stakes were really high, not in the sense of self-importance, it's just that we decided to do this thing. It seemed like a good idea. And then people just seemed to be getting way too excited about it. And way. there were too many tickets sold. And these big, scary halls and cities where people were expecting to be... I don't know what they were expecting. It was like our reputation had you know, grown since we discovered the secret to success was just don't play. <laughs> and don't play for a long time. And, you know, so... Because you guys had made like an album and an EP and some singles. Yeah, it was it was very brief and uh, not many people paid attention. The people that did were, you know, pretty, uh, you know, uh, intense about it, but um, very very small, very very small. So I was worried. I was worried sick. I, you know, because we're not entertainers. It's not like these people were buying tickets. It's not like we have a light show or we talk in between songs. We don't particularly like, you know, it's. Not our natural thing. But on the other hand... I, but that's me, you know. Yeah, you get a little more different. nervous about that. Yeah, then, I do. But when we started playing again, we were supposed to play one Boston show and one New York show, and that was going to be it. And then the Boston show turned into three sold-out shows, and the New York sold into two sold-out shows. So my attitude was, we got nothing to lose. You know, we're, we're, they want to see us. They probably, you just wanted to cash those checks. Yeah, we just want to cash those checks. ching that's the pull quote, by the way. Mission of Burma, colon, cha-ching. That's what it's always been. It just took, you know, 30 years to get there. But it seems like a lot of times when a band is at your point in their career, they are essentially working as people who provide this experience of youth to people. That like, you know, like even I as a 34-year-old, if I went to see, if Tony, Tony, Tony got back together right now, that is not a laugh line, people. If Tony, Tony, Tony got back together right now and I bought tickets to see Tony, 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 sure, like, uh, you know, Raphael Sadiq continues to be a really successful producer and musician and has made some great solo records and... You know, I'm sure it would be, but like partly what I would be going to see is just, I just want to have that feeling of what it's like to be 14 again, you know, mm-hmm. or 16 again or whatever. And I think the people who go see Chicago in concert, um, of whom there are many, and I bet Chicago puts on a really great show and Chicago still puts out albums, but those people are going to capture that feeling of their youth. And I think, you know, Chicago, is, as long as they get to have that fun of playing that show and playing this music they love, that they're proud of, and have that connection with the audience, that's cool. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it seems like you guys, in reforming after playing those reunion shows, you really put a premium on we are going to make records and we are going to make real records, not like recreation of our old feelings records, but like we want to make a new great thing, which is, I think, unusual for people in your position. Well, we did terminate in 83 in a kind of a peculiar fashion was because of the ringing in my ears. And so it wasn't, it was like we're just kind of, we put out one album and we hadn't gotten sick of each other, we hadn't run out of ideas. We never got to the sucking point. Yeah. <laughs> and so when we reformed, we just kind of picked up where we left off as if like, well, of course, we're just going to act like it's 1984. But our first tour of the United States, you know, we sold out places left and right, and then we put on an album and we toured again, and there were less people. Because the first people that wanted to relive their childhood, that was all they wanted of their childhood. So after that, they, we had to pick up a whole new... It wasn't until our, the Obliterati album, our second album, that we started to get younger people to show up at the shows. So now half our crowd are, could be our children. You know, I, I think it also... It, it kept the adversarial relationship with the audience alive <laughs> because they, they would come and they would want to hear the songs that they knew, which we had nothing against and we would play, but we also had to shove the new stuff down their throat. So The yeah. critically acclaimed new stuff you had to shove <laughs> down yeah. their throat. Yeah, but uh, you know, amidst all the hoopla of um, when we first came back, you know, and it... it it just, you know, fit that template. You know, it was something to write about for writers. And so there were articles right. and all this stuff. And there was all this hoopla, and we were all just, just kind of dubious. And time kind of proved us out. I mean, the longer we hang around, you know, the hoopla goes. And uh, we were just kind of... Uh, we just realized we're as weird as we've ever been. We don't really fit into the... We never didn't fit into the scene in 82, really. There were no bands really playing music like us. And we're, we're the same weirdos now. We don't really fit in to any particular genre. I mean, we're, I think in general the music world is more accepting of us because there's, you know, in the meantime, been a lot of noisy bands, but we're still just as, you know, kind of weird. And, and we don't make much attempt to, like, be rock stars or to, like, can walk on stage and say, you're going to love me. You know, we walk on stage and say, well, if you don't like it, you know, it's just too bad. Yeah. Well, you guys want to alienate this audience with a few more songs? <laughs>
enveloping water, all encompassing love, the improvised life grip inside the globe. I'm just a rabbit caught in the headlights. Yourself go from my guests, the band Mission of Burma. Thanks so much. Let's hear another song from our guests, Mission of Burma. This is Panic is No Option. Slow beneath the current undertow 
is no option from our guests Mission of Burma. You can find more of their set from our live show at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts on our website MaximumFun.org. Their most recent record is called Unsound. They also have several decades worth of back catalog that you should check out too. For information about their live shows and latest releases, go to MissionofBurma.com. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. This week, we did that on stage at the Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thanks to all of our guests, Lamont Price, Barney Frank, Mission of Burma. Thanks also to Emily Erskine, Alex Giorgetti, Skip Curtis, Justin Pace, Ariane Barbanel, and everyone at Oberon who helped make the live show possible. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production assistant is Christian Duenas. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Ibarian X. Perello. Our senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, extended versions of our interviews, or more from Mission of Burma's live set, all of them are free at MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket, a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. Pop Rocket. Find it wherever you download podcasts. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. 
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.